If you open our Bibles today, we'll be turning to Matthew chapter 5. Last week we looked at one of the Beatitudes, and we'll be looking at the next one. So we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Pastor Sam. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness towards us and for loving us and for giving us the gift of your word. And Father, I ask God as we look at your scriptures today, as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, I pray, Father, that your word, God, would be a delight to our souls and that we would see the truth, God, that is in here, and that we as your people would find joy in obeying you and following you and having hope, God, in this life. Father, I've written words here today, but human words are so inadequate, Lord, compared to your powerful word. And I ask, God, that you would speak. Speak to us, God, as your people today as we look at this text and when our hearts, God, be blessed and open, God, to your truth. Fill us with joy, God. I ask this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, church, today we are going through the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. And I can't help but notice that when we look at this, the words of Jesus seem here rather paradoxical. You know, blessed or happy or flourishing are those who are mourning or who are weeping or who are crying. It doesn't seem quite on the surface to make sense how that works together. You know, I think our culture really doesn't understand this, doesn't really know what to say. You know, our culture actually preaches to us instead, blessed are the happy because they are happy. Or he who dies with the most toys wins. That's, I think, the North American mantra. We find our happiness often in the things that are around us. Now, because of our culture's passionate pursuit, I would say, of pleasure, this desire to be entertained, uh, as a result, I think we as North Americans actually lack an acquaintance with death or even an understanding of how to deal with grief or when things don't go well in life, we don't know actually what to do with this. Dr. Brandy Schillis, who is the author of a book called Death Summer Coat, What the History of Death and Dying Teaches Us About Life and Living, has stated that in the North American culture, the Western culture, there's an immense tension that exists in people because, she says, we are bent on living forever, but we are committed to the disposable nature of absolutely everything else. See, what that means is if we're committed to living forever and we see, see everything else around us as disposable, we actually don't really think about how we're going to die because we're, we think we'll basically live forever. Now, as a result of us not thinking about how we're going to die, very few of us also contemplate then how we're going to live. And if you don't think about how you're going to live, you don't think about what it means to actually live a good life. What does it mean to live a good life? And you don't think about what it means to suffer loss unless, of course, it's too, until it's too late and it hits you. 
Schillis wrote this, the modern Westerner has actually lost loss. And I think she's absolutely right. The modern Westerner does not know what to do with loss. You know, when I do funerals for people, um, it might seem kind of odd, but many times, especially if I don't know the family as well, the thing that they uh, most appreciate for me is almost what I feel is cold professionalism. And it's oddly reassuring, actually, for the family. And the reason why is that they're so out of league when it comes to dealing with death that when I ask them, like, what would you like here? Would you like this at this part? What would you like this? They just say, I, I, have, no, I, I have no idea. I've never done this before. Uh, uh, can you, what do you suggest instead? And I end up doing the whole funeral, actually, for them. You know, it's, it's, it's so fascinating to see how death has been outsourced to hospitals, uh, to care facilities, and so on, and people don't know what to do when they experience this kind of loss. Now, what's interesting about us, I think, as North Americans, is despite our educational attainments, the level of wealth that we possess here, and so on, we're actually incredibly underprivileged when it comes to dealing, I think, with human mortality and mourning. Uh, I remember there was a missionary couple living in a rural part of Africa once, and they were speaking, you know, about their children and raising them there. And someone asked them the question, so don't you worry about it, that uh, you're depriving your children actually of, you know, American health care, American education, all the finest things in the world? Don't you think it's a cruel thing to do to your children? Like, what are you going to do about that? And they looked back at them and they said, well, actually, we did not want to deprive our children of being able to see poverty in this world and how the world actually lives and how people suffer in this place. You know, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because we're so concerned here about having the necessary tools to live, making sure our kids are in all the right piano lessons, all the right soccer teams, and you drive yourself crazy literally driving them around everywhere. It's just this nutty cycle. And yet we actually don't stop to think about how you actually are supposed to live life and all the advantages we think we're giving to our children, are we actually depriving them of something else? Do they not think about what it means to live a good life or to live a life? When you look at all the different people who live in this world, many who live in poverty and don't have what we have, what does it mean to, for one to live a good life? If a good life consists of piano lessons and all the things that we have, it means that 75% of the world will never be able to live a good life. So what is a good life? actually, in God's eyes. Now, many of us still think that, of course, well, at least a good life consists of living for an immensely long time. And we see this theme actually explored in movies, in Hollywood, longevity. But what's interesting about Hollywood movies is they're almost always tragic when it comes to longevity. So you take, for example, the character of Arwen from the Lord Peter Jackson's version of The Lord of the Rings. And she uh, falls in love with Aragorn, you know, who is the uh, king-to-be, and he's human. And what happens, of course, in the vision is that uh, as, as she stays perpetually youthful, she watches her husband age and eventually die and turn into basically a monument to him and uh, leaving her alone to grieve. In most cases, actually, when you look at these movies or these stories, they actually see as they process it that long life is a curse. And it's a curse because you look at everyone else around you beginning to die one after another, and you must live on with the compiled grief in your heart even as they depart from this life. You know, so you look at that and you wonder to yourself, what does it mean actually to live well? Does it mean long life? Certainly not. Not even Hollywood thinks so. Therefore, the only solution that Hollywood seems to grant, or even the writers in our culture, is that the only way that you can be free of it is actually to release yourself and to have your own death. And only when you die does the pain actually stop. Now, 
When you look at what the Bible has to say about dealing with grief, it's a completely different picture. The Bible doesn't give you hope saying that, don't worry, when you die, all of your pain will stop one day and you'll be free. The Bible paints the opposite picture and it says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It doesn't say blessed are those who mourn for they will die and feel nothing. That's, I think, the hope that our culture tries to give us. The Bible says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. See, and this is why mourning or grief for Christians can actually be saturated and filled with an incredible amount of joy and hope that nobody else in the world has. Because for everyone else, it's the dark, inescapable jaws of death that seem to chase after you. This grief and mourning that threatens to swallow you up. And yet, when you come to Christianity... The Bible tells us that death itself, grief and mourning will be former things, and death itself will be swallowed up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only in the Christian worldview do you have the greatest enemy in the world, death, mourning, and grieving, being swallowed up by a greater force, a greater force of life, a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is the only eternal comfort that anybody can receive, and it's God-given. Now, in order for us to understand our text today, The question for us is, what is Jesus speaking about when he says mourning? What kind of mourning is he referring to, and how, then, will he comfort us in this? And I'm going to suggest that the Bible actually has multiple kinds of mourning, and I want to cover at least four of them that I think are in the Scriptures. Okay, The first one, I would say, is one we are all familiar with, and that is the mourning over the loss of loved ones. Okay? So this is something that you see, for example, in the book of Genesis, when Abraham's wife Sarah dies, he buys a cave for her, and he mourns over her, and he buries her there, and his goal later is also to be buried there, laid to rest next to his wife one day. And this continues on, right? When you see Abraham's grandson Jacob, when he is deceived into believing that his favorite son Joseph was killed by a wild animal, he goes into a period of mourning. He tears his clothing as an outward expression of a sign of grief in that culture. And he begins to say that I will never be comforted. I'm going down to my grave with my gray hairs in absolute sorrow because I've lost my son. And he mourns for him. Later, when Jacob dies in Egypt, because of his stature as the father of Joseph, who basically saved the entire nation of Egypt, when he dies, the Egyptians and the people of Israel, the children of Israel, they mourn for him for 70 whole days, and they take him out to be buried back in his ancestral land, and they mourn for him for another week. So you realize mourning is a part of human culture and has always been. Now, Jesus himself, when you look at the New Testament, was no stranger to grief and mourning. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus, of all things, was a man of sorrows. So I know some people have tried to say that Jesus was a party man. Look at him, he went and made wine at all these parties. I'm like, yeah, well, he went to things that most of us celebrate. Jesus was not a killjoy. He went to weddings. But at the same time, the scripture explains to us, he was a man of sorrows. He carried incredible burdens as he did the will of the Lord you know, dying for us on the cross. You read in John chapter 11 that Jesus, standing there at the grave of Lazarus, knowing very well that he has the power to raise him from the dead, still looks at his tomb and he cries over him, weeping. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. See, you know, a a friend of mine who had lost an adult sibling, you know, as we were talking about death and what it's like to cry over the grave of someone that you really love, told me that um, in one sense, he says, Sam, you never actually get over it. All those people who tell you that you eventually get over it are lying to you. He said, the pain actually never goes away. It just doesn't come as often. 
You see, you did, deep down inside, actually, you and I intrinsically know that human beings, those that we love and who have passed on, are more than just a pile of chemicals, carbon, organic matter, but they're actually irreplaceable human beings crafted in the image of God, and that when they're gone, we know that we have lost something that can never be replaced on this side of eternity. So that's the loss of loved ones that we know, and we mourn such things. You know, the second kind of mourning that we see in the scriptures is a mourning, though, of over personal and I would say corporate sin. Now, this is unique, I think, to us as believers. The world doesn't really think much about that. We might feel regret, but mourning over sin is a biblical thing. So, for example, when you read about David, who killed Uriah and then took his wife Bathsheba, you find that there's repentance in his heart, absolute sorrow over what he has done as he confesses to God his sin and seeks for repentance. You also find this, for example, corporately in Numbers 14, when the children of Israel are supposed to go up and take the promised land, but they refuse to believe God's promises, and they sin against God, they refuse to follow what he wants them to do, and as a result, the Lord disciplines them. So that's an example of corporate sin, but as the Lord disciplines them, they take off their ornaments and they mourn before him, confessing their sin. Now, all of us, in some form or another, can relate to this, because whether you're a Christian or not, I am certain you have done things in your life that you regret. I think some things here, some people here, you've done things that you would want never anyone else to know about in your life, and it depresses you actually to this day. But the commonality for us as Christians, what's so interesting is that though we come in all shapes and sizes, different language groups from different parts of the world, living at different eras in human history, if there's one thing that we all have in common as Christians is that we have this common experience of mourning, feeling a deep sense of regret over our own sin against God. A deep sense of how we've actually offended God and therefore also how we are incredible recipients of His grace. See, we understand, if you are a Christian here, that you at one time sat on the throne of your life and you occupied it and you said, my will be done and not yours, Lord. I call the shots here in my life. I am my own boss. And there is no such thing as a Christian who has not gone through the process of being humbled and having to admit, God, I am nothing. I thought it was all about myself, just as Sina was saying, but you were there for me at every step of the way. I bow my knees before you and whether I am great and a billionaire or whether I have 10 bucks in my pocket, I am the same before you. There is equality here in the church and before Jesus Christ. Now, given that Matthew 3 and 4 have both John the Baptist and Jesus preaching about repentance, I think this is partially what's in mind here when Jesus talks about mourning. That is mourning over the nature of our sin, idolatry, that is prizing anything in our hearts above God. Now, I remember talking to a pastor once I told me a story about his son, and while he had once given his son a Lego magazine, and being a five-year-old boy, a Lego magazine was wonderful. He would flip through this thing, eyes wide open, looking at every picture, and he said it didn't take long, actually, for the whole magazine to be reduced to tatters and basically rags. The kid had thumbed through the thing so many times you could barely hold it up anymore. It looked like it was 2,000 years old. But one day his son brought the magazine to his father with tears in his eyes and he looked at him and said, Daddy, I need you to take this and put it away for now because I think I have a Lego idolatry problem and I need you to take this away from me. Now, we look at a story like that and we're tempted to chuckle and think, of how cute that is. Little child, you know, that's so good. 
But the truth of the matter is, is that I want to say that because of this, parents, I think, proper discipleship of their child, explaining to him how idolatry is not just bowing down to a statue of the Buddha, but it's actually something that occurs in the heart and occurs whenever you take anything else and you say, I'm going to worship this and find my worth, my affection, and my joy in that over God, his parents had actually taught him rightly. And even as a five-year-old boy, he understood that and realized if he did not deal with this idol in his heart, though it was a Lego magazine, he was bumping God off of the throne and he could not do such a thing as a believer in Jesus Christ as his follower. Now, the truth is, is like, you know, if you don't learn this young, and I think why I smile at that is because, or if you don't learn to deal with this in the small things, as you grow up, uh, you actually won't be able to deal with this in the big things at all. See, for us as adults, few of us, I think, would drool over a Lego magazine, but it just changes, right? It becomes boats, cars, vacations, and all these other more sophisticated things instead that we'd rather put into our hearts. You know what? Sin is a ravenous predator, and you need to understand this. Too many people walk through life thinking that the world is just an innocent place and there's nothing terrible. The Bible's picture is that sin is a predator, and it stalks around every corner, crouching at the door, looking for somebody to devour, and it will eat you alive before you even know it if you don't know how to spot it and also to go on the offensive and hunt it instead. You know, the great Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Either you hunt it and kill it or it will hunt you down and actually kill you instead. You know, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's only those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God who can understand this and even talk this way, only those who belong to the kingdom of God who say, not my will be done, God, but your will be done, can mourn over their own sin and fight it. You know, for those of you who are here, most of you are adults, and I don't think many of you are interested in Lego magazines, but I am sure that each to their own, you have things that are competing for the affections of God in your own heart. Have you given in to some of those things? Is God wrestling with you in your heart? You actually know what you need to give up today, but you just don't want to let it go because it's so close to you like a warm blanket, and you think to yourself, what will I do if I don't have this? You know, brothers and sisters, blessed are those who mourn. And if you mourn because you give up something that seems so dear to you, can you trust the Lord Jesus himself will comfort you as you give up what you cannot ultimately keep to have what you can never lose, and that is an eternal life with him. Third thing that I want to mention here about mourning in the scriptures, the third thing we see is mourning over the effects of sin in this world. So not personal sin, but the effects of sin in this world. Now, Mature Christians actually do not see the world in the same way that everybody else sees the world. And Christian maturity is not about whether you have a low footprint or you're an environmental uh, individual, you eat a vegan diet or paleo, one of those sort of things. It's not, it's not primarily such things, okay? The, the concern for a Christian actually is what you consume in terms of the scripture. What is your diet when it comes to the word of God? You know, Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 to 14 says, for though this by this time, You ought to be teachers. You need someone else to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, right, like a baby, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
you know, I think it's a fascinating thing for me, having moved here to the North Shore and talking with people here. And they often ask, like, why did you move here? What do you like? Do you like the mountains? Do you like the snow? You're so close to Grouse Mountain. Do you have a pass for it? Do you want to hike the Grouse Grind with me? You know, I talk to people here and they all say, you know, what is it about North Van? They'll say, it's the mountains. It's the majestic mountains. You know, it's the snow caps that are out there. Look at the lush green forest. Burnaby is way too crowded over there. So I don't want to be there. And tranquility. And yet the veteran Christian walking to a place like North Vancouver, uh, who is a soldier and consumes, I say, a high-protein diet of the Word of God, does not see just those things, but actually sees in the midst of the beautiful trees and the majestic mountains a battlefield. Every time I walk through the city, I can't help but mourn, actually, in my own soul as I look at people who are chasing wealth, chasing after all these things, these pleasures and entertainments and stuff, and many of them come to me and talk after us. They're no happier than people who live in Burnaby. I'm like, you're way wealthier than they are, but I find that you're equally unhappy and you still have the same problems with your kids, with your business, where you're going to live, can't sell my home now. It's exactly the same, and you live in the most beautiful part of the city. So your answer obviously doesn't lie in all of these things. You know, I see the demons that drive people to despair and depression, even though they live in million-dollar homes. I see the illusions of entertainment and wealth and the things that they offer people, but can't actually leave them with anything but a vacuum in their hearts that they just pour stuff into and can't actually fill. I see people all the time who, to me, look like as healthy as they are, as crossfit ready as they are, they're spiritual skeletons, brittle bones that suffer from basically spiritual osteoporosis, even though they're young. And when tragedy strikes them and hard times come, they snap and they break and they don't know what to do. You can't see, you see, the world with just the eyes that you have, but when you see with the eyes of God, you see something completely different. I see not just beauty outside in the natural, but I see the walking dead all the time around here. And my heart actually breaks for it. I remember talking to an individual who talked to me about how Vancouver is one of the worst places in the world, he says, for sex trafficking. There's a dark underbelly in our city of drugs, violence, greed, injustice, all these things that nice folk don't normally like to think about. But all of this is the result of sin in this world, corporate sin, the effects of sin over this world. And I, as a Christian, I look at these things and I long every day for Jesus to return. It's my desire to go home and to be with my Lord. I am so tired of living in a world of sin. But you know, as the Apostle Paul says, right? He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Yet to remain in the flesh, he says, is more necessary on your account. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And so I too, I feel like, he does. I want to be with Jesus because his world is much better. This world has nothing ultimately to offer me yet to remain here so long as I have breath in my lungs. God has work for me to do and I will use every last minute of my time, God willing, for fruitful labor in my master's kingdom. That's the life of us as Christians. We mourn over the ravages of sin in this world and we say, God, what would you have me do to bring your redeeming grace to these people around me? That's number three. Number four. Number four, mourning over sin, uh, suffering as for the sake of the kingdom. Now, this is a theme that runs all throughout the book of Matthew and especially in the Sermon of the Mount, finding joy and mourning over the fact that you are suffering but still finding God-given joy. You know, Second Timothy chapter 3 says, uh, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life 
in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So to be a Christian, there's no escape from this. You will indeed suffer in this life. And we hurt alongside those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's not an easy thing to do, to be a Christian and to live for Christ. You'll find opposition not only from the world, but sometimes even in a church. You know, I remember a friend of mine talking to me over dinner when I lived in the States, this couple who served in the underground church of China as a pastor and his wife. And I remember praying for them and grieving with them when we got this news report that a number of the fellow pastors in their underground church had all been rounded up by the government and were in prison and they couldn't contact them anymore. And I remember sitting there with them and they're crying and we're praying for them. I said, what should we pray for? And they said, do you know what we feel right now? If we could have anything, it would be not to be here anymore, but to be right over there with them so that we could be in jail with them. And I look at that and I go, how crazy the Christian mindset must seem to people. You're safe in America. You got out. You know what I mean? But yet, of all things you want is you want to be there and in jail with them? Why? It's all for the sake of the gospel. Because to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to bear suffering and reproach and even jail for him, to have the privilege of doing so is an honor for us as Christians. You know, how on earth you take joy away from people who can be happy in their Lord in jail? You know, you can't do anything to some, that sort of people. It's so different. You know, we mourn for brothers and sisters and for those here and abroad who suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who go to church illegally because their government won't let them go and worship with fellow brothers and sisters. And we mourn for those who are persecuted and killed simply for the sake that they are Christians. So this is how we mourn. We mourn for the sake of those who suffer for the kingdom and for ourselves, even as we suffer. Okay. So to sum all this up, I would say the four things really, what is Jesus referring to? Who is he talking about when he speaks about those who mourn here? The answer thing is he's talking about Christians, his followers, people who belong to his kingdom, who mourn in these areas, grieving over the loss of loved ones, grieving over their own personal sins and their corporate sins, grieving over the effects of sin on this world, and grieving over the fact that those who belong to the kingdom of God suffer for the sake of that kingdom. And for all of that, the Christian life is a life of mourning. Yes, it is, but it's also a life of joy. And as Jesus says in this text, not a downer, but a life of comfort and comfort from God himself. The question for us, of course, is what are the blessings that are given to us as Christians? And I want to highlight three of them, at least for you. So if you're outlining, you can write these ones down in the back here of your bulletin. Number one comes straight from our text. I would say this, the Christian Mourning actually leads to comfort from God. This is exactly what the text says, right? It says, they shall be comforted. No qualifications, which means comfort in every possible situation. You know, if you're about to lose a loved one or you actually have lost a loved one, you know, you think about what do you say to a widow who is crying at the grave of her young husband that she just buried? You know, the world honestly tries to give uh, these pithy proverbs, you know, to try to help with it. Things like, um, uh, don't cry because it, uh, because it's over, but smile because it, because it happened. You know, it's, it's so hard to say things. They just seem so inadequate. I know people who use these things. And look at it. Do you know what Jesus has to say to the widow there at the grave? Jesus says in the book of John, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's very different from smile because it happened. 
one can never bring back the dead, but the other one says, you look to me, you look to me, you want to talk about resurrection, your husband will live again because of me. You know, it's amazing the type of comfort that Jesus Christ can bring to a people. Nothing in this world compares to that. Infinitely more comforting. No smile can bring the dead back to life. But at the command of our Lord and Savior, dead bones will form back together. Flesh and muscle will reform over those bones, over those bones, and the dead will come back to life and live in the presence of God. You know, I, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, when I was young, well, I guess I'm still somewhat young, maybe. But when I was younger, uh, when I was dating my wife, you know, I used to write her letters, you know, and these things. And I remember writing to her uh, this, this love letter about, um, and I said, yes, in this letter, that if one of us were to die first, I hoped it would be her. Now, uh, that needs some explanation because it sounds bad by itself. <laughs> but, and she was right, actually, in pointing out the fact that it's quite weird to write in a, in a love letter uh, about somebody else dying. But I thought I should explain that. The reason I said that was because the rest of the letter was actually full of scripture. And I said, I can say this, actually, because I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, I know one of us will be in a box first. One of the two of us. And if I could have anything in my life, that would be God's gift to me, if I could have the privilege of being by her bedside as she passes, so that I could take her hand and hand her hand over into the arms of my Savior, Jesus Christ, and to know that she will be safe. You know, On this earth, it is my goal and my joy to protect her and to help her flourish as a woman of God and to make sure that she follows Jesus you know, all the days of her life. But I know somebody who can do that way better than me. And that is Christ. So I hope that I will have the privilege of being able to do that someday. And though I will mourn, just as this text says, I will have the unshakable comfort that comes from God of knowing that my loved ones are safe and at home with the Lord. You know, I am not suggesting here, for those of you who are hearing, that dying is easy for us as Christians. In fact, the process of dying, as I've been in funeral, uh, I've been in funerals, or I've been in care facilities, I've been in palliative, being there the last 24 hours before people go as a pastor, it's not easy. It's incredibly hard. The process of dying is actually, uh, it just seems so humiliating at times. It takes all of your energy just to die well. And yet the truth is, for us as Christians, though the process of dying may actually be very hard and even scary, the truth is, on the other side of death, for us as Christians, that's not scary for us. You know, it's not frightening for Christians because on the other side of death is divine delight in the presence of our Savior and our King Jesus. So, I don't like the effects of aging. I don't like the fact that I get tired more easily. I can't run as fast as I used to be able to do. I don't like the fact that when I think about how my mind is a little slower every year, and then also when I could used to be able to hold things up to my eyes and I could see them here, I have to go like this now farther and farther. And I found a formula online that tells me how many centimeters I will lose every year. So I was looking at that. It's just, it's all downhill, you know, from here on out. And yet at the same time, 
as I think about those things, I know that I don't have to grieve this. I don't have to try to recover my youth because one day I will have a new and glorious body given to me by the power of Jesus Christ who will one day use that same power to rule over all things in this life. And because my citizenship is in heaven, not primarily in Canada, I will be there. That will be mine. That is God's promise to me and to all of you who are members of his kingdom. You will never have to worry about having loss when you stand in the presence of your king. You know, whether we mourn loss or death or these sorts of things, our sins as an individual, we must never forget that we as Christians have a unique view of godly grief. And that is we don't need to be afraid of grief because grief is actually God's assigned school teacher whose job it is to actually teach us about the joys of having divine comfort, forgiveness, mercy, grace, and reconciliation. That's what grief actually is for a Christian. There's a poem written by a man named Robert Browning Hamilton called Along the Road, and he puts it actually like this. I walked a mile with pleasure, and she chattered all the way. She left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And here's the point. In your times of your greatest grief, it's when oftentimes you know whether you're a Christian or not, you actually discover who your best friends are, right? Your best friends are the ones who show up for you when you're grieving. And I say the same thing is true when it comes to spiritual things. When you go through rough times, what you learn is about how good your best friend Jesus, how good he actually is. You learn about his ability to give you divine comfort, joy, and happiness, even when all around you, your circumstances stay, you should be absolutely miserable. Mature Christians will testify to you. Those of you who have lived long in the faith will testify to you that they've probably learned more about God's comfort, His grace, His amazing kindness to you in a few short months of suffering, more than they ever learned in years of prosperity, right? Some of you old ones, yes, I see you're shaking, you're nodding your heads, you know. See, sorrow for Christians actually does not drive us into the depths of despair, but it drives us actually instead into the unfathomable depths of God's grace. That's what it can do for us. That's why those who mourn can be blessed. That's number one. Second thing this in your outline, Christian mourning also leads to compassion for others. Okay, Psalm 119, 136 says this, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Okay. So the law of God, rightly understood by a Christian who has known the grace of Jesus Christ, does not produce pride. On the contrary, it actually produces tears. And we look at people around our world and we don't say, I'm holier than you because I'm a religious person. You look at people around you and you say, I have compassion on the way that you live. You don't know any better and I was once exactly like you. Why will you throw away the law of God and die? Do you not see there is a better way to live? There is forgiveness where you can never have imagined it. There is peace. If you are anxious and suffering under the effects of anxiety in this world, there is peace, everlasting peace that's available to you. Why will you go anywhere else? Turn yourself over to Jesus. You know, I remember once debating a student during a club's day who came from a different religion about the nature of Christian love and forgiveness uh, compared to his religion. And as we discussed these things, our holy books and God's demands, the difference actually between us couldn't have been more stark. At the end, I asked him, I was 
we were kind of frustrated. We were looking, I said, look, okay, at the end of the day, according to your religion, I'm apparently going to hell and there's really no hope for me. Do you actually care enough in our discussion here? I, I don't feel you do. Do you actually care enough to want to save me? And he hesitated and he said, yes, but really, I can't, I'm not gonna, I can't help you. Uh, if you want to know more, I'll send, give you the name of a contact of somebody else who can talk to you, but I'm sorry, I just, I can't do anymore. And I remember looking at him and I just said, look, that's the difference between you and the Christian faith. If you want to learn about Christianity and learn about have a life with Jesus, I will meet with you. I will study the Bible with you. You can move in and live with my house if you want to. And we will talk about these things. I want to see that you come to know Jesus. And I want nothing more than to see you saved by the same Lord who saved me. I don't outsource my Lord's work. I live my Lord's work because of what he has done for me. Third thing here. Christian mourning leads to joy and intimacy with Christ. Some people say to me when they see the ring on my finger, what was it like to give up all that in engineering to come and be a pastor? And I say to them often, I actually never gave up anything. I swapped the temporal joy of a paycheck and working with machines and the fun of coding and doing software for the eternal joy of being able to baptize people and to see them brought into a relationship with my Savior and live forever that's not giving up anything. That's called gaining everything. So I'm opportunistic. I took the greater joy that was available to me. You know, I uh, think about what Jesus had to say and think about his presence and the joy that we have being with him and serving him in this way. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. You see, Ultimately, what we as Christians want, why we can have such joy in giving up lucrative careers and all these things is because what we want the most of all is Jesus Christ himself. He is the treasure that's hidden in the field. He is what is ultimately value. What I want ultimately from him is to be able to have his, his joy and his presence with me. You know, when you're sick and you have somebody who comes up to your bedside and they look at you and they say, I wish I could do more for you. And then they hold your hand. Many times those of you who love those, you look at them, you say, you don't need to do anything more for me. You just being here for me is more than enough for me. That's actually how love talks. True love talks that way. Not, well, actually you can, uh, if you could give me $50,000 and you do this, this, and that. I mean, we do that when we do love people, but love doesn't start with that. Love starts with, you are what is most valuable here. And then would you help me to do these things? See, Christianity, which is grounded in love, works the same way. What we want not primarily from God is not the gifts, but we want the giver himself. And though we might suffer for his sake, he promises us that we will have joy and comfort because he will be with us and will never leave us or forsake us. You know, Richard Wurmbrandt was the famous Romanian pastor who spent many years in solitary confinement for his faith. And one night, in the midst of his absolute grief and loneliness, he begged that the Lord would speak to him. And he said this in his own words, Lord, you see, I have no brothers, no sisters. I don't have your written word. I don't have holy communion. I don't have any of these things. But you have so often spoken to pe people 
even very evil persons, like Saul of Tarsus, who had been a persecutor and killer of Christians, and you came and spoke to him. And as I have nobody to speak to me, would you come and speak to me tonight? And then, he says, they were exceptional circumstances. When I said the Lord spoke to me, I heard his voice. I expected a word of comfort from him, but instead I heard a very strange word, and he put to me a question. What is your name? Now, I believe that Jesus is God, and surely God should know at least what my name is. It's a very strange thing for God to ask somebody what is their name. But he has asked strange questions before. He asked Adam, Adam, where are you? Well, if he is God, he should know where Adam is. He put this question to Adam, not because he did not know, but to make Adam think. Am I not in the wrong place, hidden in a bush? hiding myself from the Creator before whose eyes nobody can hide themselves. Now, I knew all of my life that my name is Richard, but I could not reply to him at that time, my name is Richard, because I had happened to read in church history that in Britain there was once a big saint, and I have the same name as that saint. And I feared to say to Jesus that my name is Richard because I trembled about something else. What if I say that? He will say, are you like that, Richard? I wasn't like that, Richard, so I could not say my name is Richard. I thought to myself, I should say I am a Christian, but I feared to say that because I knew in the first centuries that Christians were persecuted. They entered the arenas of the circuses and were devoured by wild beasts for their faith. I was not courageous like those Christians. I thought to myself, should I say I am a pastor? But I did not dare because a pastor must watch over his flock day and night. And I had not been like this. He had asked me, what is your name? And I bowed before him and said, Jesus, I have no name. Allow me to bear yours. And this is what he really wishes for us. Paul understood it. Not I live, not the old Paul, not the new Paul, not the wicked Paul who had been a murderer, not the new Paul who is an apostle, not the wicked and full of vices, not the very good and full of virtues. This has been abolished. Not I live, but Christ lives in me. Friends, this is what Jesus wants above all else for all of you out here to have your mourning and your, of your heart satisfied by the ultimate joy of knowing Him alone and saying, I have Christ who lives inside of me. And He promises you that one day He'll wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more. And there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain in that new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because the former things are passed away. You know, if you're not a Christian here today, let me just tell you that Jesus himself is calling out to you through his word. And he says to you, bring your anxiety, bring your mourning, and come and find the comfort alone that I can give you and find rest for your soul. The Son of God died on the cross to pay for your enormous debt of sin. And he promises you eternal life. Will you not give your life over to him? You know, if you're a Christian here today, God also calls out to you. And he asks you, do you mourn over your own sin? Do you realize what he has done for you? Maybe you've been blaming others for the state of your marriage, your kids, or your work, and all these other things, but the real issue is actually you. Are you broken over your own sin? And if you are broken over your own sin, and you go to our God for forgiveness, and you say, Father, help me to live different from the way I have lived in the past, he will comfort you. He will change you. He will make you new and give you what you could never have imagined you could receive. You know, for those of you who are grieving over the loss of loved ones and tragedy in your life, he says to you in Psalm 84, verses 10 to 12, 
For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a shield and a sun, and God bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who work, who walk uprightly. That's what he promises to us. And my question is, brothers and sisters here, are you walking with him today? Do you mourn over your own sin? Do you mourn over the effects of sin in this world? Or do you mourn because of the suffering that you experience or those around you experience for the sake of the kingdom? The promise he offers you is comfort, eternal comfort and peace. Will you not take him up on that offer? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you so much, Lord, for your mercy towards us. And I just ask, Lord, would you continue to provide for us and give us comfort? Though I don't know, God, all the people who are here today, who you are speaking to. But I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see mourning and grief through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that comes through him. There is ultimate hope that comes through our Savior. Help us, Father, to love you and to trust you and to find the comfort that you have promised to your very own children. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' mighty name.